HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Rachel Stroer, President of the Land Institute. Today, we're going to talk to Rachel about the Land Institute's vision for the future of farming how perennial crops help fight climate change. And we'll hear Rachel's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Last season, we upped our coverage of sustainable agriculture, whether in episode 161 with Jesse Smith from the White Buffalo Land Trust, episode 163 featuring the Rebuilding Our Food System panel at Santa Barbara City College, or episode 167 with Karen Spring Mills founder Kevin Morse. As we said in those episodes, spotlighting farmers and talking about farming wasn't a particular focus of Julia's. But similar to the aha moment Julia had when she returned to the United States from abroad, we've realized that we won't have good to food to cook in the future if we don't invest in more sustainable methods to produce it now. Our inspiration from Julia is that good food matters to our quality of life, to our health, and the health of the planet, and that is wholly underpinned by how it's grown and raised. Someone at the forefront of making this critical change to our food system is Rachel Stroer, president of the Land Institute. Based in Salina, Kansas, the Land Institute is a nonprofit research organization and leader in the global movement to create perennial, intrinsically regenerative, scalable agriculture. Led by a team of plant breeders and ecologists in local, regional, and international partnerships, the Land Institute develops perennial grains, pulses, and oil seed bearing plants to create crops that produce high yields 
and reduce or eliminate the harmful effects and toxic inputs of our current large-scale food production methods. Rachel is just the Land Institute's third and first female president in the organization's 45-year history. In her seven-year tenure, she's previously served as their chief operating officer and chief strategy officer. A Salina native herself, Rachel is charged with implementing the Institute's goal of spreading worldwide the cultivation of naturally regenerative crops to transform agriculture production. Before joining the Institute, Rachel was involved with the sustainability-focused rebuilding of Greensburg, Kansas, after an EF5 tornado destroyed the town in 2007. She holds a BA from NYU and an MBA from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, also known as UMKC. I grew up right down the street. Rachel joins us today to introduce us to the Land Institute and their worldwide mission to expand the planting of perennial crops. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you so much, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit, I gave that brief kind of technical description of the Land Institute, but tell us more in layman's terms about the Land Institute's mission and, and what is really what its vision is for the future of, of our food. Sure. Um, well, you did a beautiful job of describing um, what we're about. I would add that um, our biggest vision and mission at the Land Institute is to reconcile the human economy with nature's economy starting with food, and in particular, starting with grain agriculture, as you mentioned. Um, we really imagine a future where humans are sustained by these diverse perennial agroecosystems um, that sustain both the ecological and cultural resources upon which we depend. So I, I'm sure I feel I feel like hurricanes bring this kind of into focus. What you're talking about the, the balance of nature and nature's kind of power to remind us that actually we are beholden to it. Does that also mean that you guys have even a bigger vision beyond crops of of what you know? If you get perennials going at scale, that you would move on to. Um, I think that this getting perennial grains onto the landscape on a global scale, um, there are today about 2.7 billion acres of grain production in the world. And to transition a majority of that to perennial production will probably take more than my lifetime to achieve. Um, <laughs> so I think um, at best we will put ourselves out of business and that will be a good thing um, in the next 100 to 150 years. Um, but we are, in addition to, I will say that in addition to the sort of biophysical and ecological uh, considerations of this new perennial diverse grain agriculture system, we are also very much interested in the socio-cultural aspects of this perennial future for humanity and our food system and um, are studying ways that we can learn from each other and bridge between differences to ensure that at the same time that we're creating the, the technology, the perennial grain crops, and the ecological uh, cropping systems to plant them in, that we're simultaneously creating the bridge for the cultures and the communities that will steward these grains and be nourished by them in the future. What would be like an example of, of that, of that social, political, cultural, social, cultural change? 
Sure. You know, we talk a lot, like, as I mentioned before, this concept of reconciling the human economy with nature's economy, which really represents encouraging a society that can live within ecological limits. We are trying to create an agriculture that can produce food within ecological limits and sustain itself over hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, and so we want to do the same thing for the cultures and the society that gets built and rebuilt around these grains in, into the future. So a really strong consciousness around ecological limits and what that means to humans, um, sort of asking and answering, asking, I guess, and then answering the question of what is required of us in social terms. One of the best uh, examples of where this lives in our work right now is in a program we call Civic Science. Um, it's a great program. I think there's over 100 citizens all over the U.S. participating today in a perennial wheat and perennial Kernza and also planting perennial silphium, which is an oilseed crop that we are working to develop at the Land Institute. And these citizens plant these, these crops in their gardens at a, or community gardens at a small scale, and they watch them and they steward them over, a, over many years. And they send data back to us at the Land Institute that we then incorporate into our breeding programs to understand how they do in different climates and whether they reproduce year over year and whether they're perennial and how they look in these different climates. And these citizens get to uh, engage with these perennial plants in a way that's really robust and also uh, important to the research overall. So just one example of, of how we are thinking about that socioeconomic component. Would, would another example, I'm just trying to or, orient it for our, our listeners who are not scientists, um, what ecological limits, like an example of that, is is it also this sort of push for seasonal eating when you're particularly talking about produce and that the ecological limit is not trying to force nature to produce things out of when it would naturally occur? Um, yes, I think that would certainly be a consideration um, of of what it's like to live in this ecological future. I think there's also probably a locality. Uh, you know, think about the farm to table sort of local food movement. Mm -hmm. Getting getting your calories from closer in, um, I think, will be a component of that as well. And also, I mean, what I love about Julia's work and and that we're doing this podcast is this idea of just like people cooking, <laughs> um, you know, using their hands. And so using their hands to sow the seeds, using their hands to harvest the grain, to um, mill it in some cases. I know my grandmother milled her own grain in her kitchen. Um, and then baking with it or cooking with it and using it in the kitchen and family recipes that get designed and redesigned over time. Um, I think that that physical engagement of using your hands is really important component of, of understanding how to live within ecological limits that we can't. Um, and, and it's a, and it's a creative outlet in a very sort of inspiring and joyful place to be too. It's, it's not a, it's not a doomsday version of this future. It's, it's a much more enjoyable and tasty uh, version of the future. Well, it sounds like you're also talking about people being less removed from the process of where the wrong ingredients of food are made and more directly, as you say, planting, like 
sort of hearing hearing yes. a song about victory gardens coming. <laughs> you know, Maybe. I, I will restrain myself. <laughs> so yeah. tell us tell us more specifically um, about how perennial crops are a tool, bigger picture, to actually help fight fight climate change, and how do they at the same time contribute to more sustainable farming? Sure. Um, so most of most all of our grain crops today are annuals, and they are mostly grown in monoculture. So one crop per field per time, and um, oftentimes monocultures over long periods of time. Although there are some other practices that improve this. Um, with the annual grains that we have. And um, arguably the single limiting factor of annual grain agriculture is that it is annual. So every year it dies or is killed off and has to be re-sowed. Um, and it is in that act of disturbing the soil that we have lost much of the soil organic matter and we lose soil to erosion and runoff, um, but we also have lost a lot of the soil carbon that was stored in that sink of the soil um, that was previously under perennial polyculture native uh, vegetation. And so what the perennial does is it mimics the natural ecosystem that was there before and that built the soils upon which we eat. And it persists year over year, it has deep typically deep root systems that can reach deep into the ground for nutrients and water and um, also hold that soil and build this teeming um, biodiversity below ground as well as fostering biodiversity above ground. Um, so it is in the persistence of those roots year after year where perennial and uh, diverse mixtures really see their sort of, um, their hero shot is in the roots, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing, maybe you could tell us about Kernza and, and what it is and how it was developed and in the process also, um, because obviously, well, not obviously, but I, I know from talking with the folks at Land Institute, there a lot of this is from hybridization and breeding, but I think people got freaked out about that after GMO. And maybe you could also distinguish the difference between regular plant breeding and, and genetically modified. Sure. So we take two approaches to developing these new perennial grain crops. One is um, called domestication. So it is taking a relatively wild already perennial species like intermediate wheatgrass, which is the grass that kerns of grain is harvested from. And incrementally, year over year, the plant breeders select for, they look for the plant with the biggest seeds and the most seeds and the right kind of crop qualities that they're looking for. And they select those and they reproduce those and they cross those back. And each year they get better and better yield and other crop characteristics. And that's sort of a slow process that is pretty well assured. If you can get a species that, that behaves well and you start making progress, then it's, it's sort of a slow train to the destination. 
Um, on the other hand, we also have what's called a wide hybridization program. And that's, um, for instance, our perennial wheat program is, is this type of program. And this is where the breeder takes an annual high yielding crop like annual wheat, Durham wheat in our case, and crosses it back with a perennial relative, in our case, intermediate wheatgrass, this already perennial um, cousin of annual wheat. And the idea is to mate those two plants and try to get an offspring that keeps the big seeds crop uh, characteristics of the annual that's been developed over the last 200 years in plant breeding and also retain the perenniality of the uh, native cousin. So trying to sort of coax the, the right genes into the offspring of those, of those combinations. Um, so those are the two ways that we've approached it. Both of these methodologies are traditional plant breeding. Um, they're not necessary. They're not GMOs in the way that we've come to know them today. Um, they are, th these two methodologies are both enhanced significantly though, through what's called genomic selection. So there are modern molecular tools that we can use to allow us to have, for instance, one cycle per year instead of one cycle every two or three years. Um, and so with those tools and markers, we can see what's happening in a seedling and we don't have to wait to see it grow in the field to know if it's going to have big seeds or uh, be free, free threshing or have these other characteristics that are desired. So it's like a scientific way to peek at how it's going to develop naturally. And if it's not going the right way, move on quicker than waiting for the full crop cycle. Exactly, exactly. And I, I am far from any GMO expert at all, but in GMO, the difference is that you're actually going into the DNA and manipulating it so you right away get the result that you at least are trying for. Yes, and um, there are other components of, of GMO. I am certainly also not an expert on um, but you know some of the some of the scariest components of that are when we're taking things like an animal gene and putting it into a plant, you know, crossing kingdoms um, with with the move, and then also, in in my opinion, um, when the purpose is so that I can put more chemicals on my food, um, it seems like it's not a great uh, reason to do anything. And of course, for, for those who might not be familiar, plant breeding is a very natural process that's been done by Homo sapiens since they started planting any kind of crops or food. Right. And it happens in nature. I mean, it's, it's as we sometimes say, good old fashioned plant sex. <laughs> yes, plants are breeding and in, in intermarrying inter um, which also goes back to right why Monsanto is so rapacious about making sure that you're, it's controlling the, the GMO seed that it has because they don't want it messed up. If, if people aren't careful, it will, nature will manipulate it as well. Right. And they don't want anybody else to have it either. They don't want that protected gene that they've um, patented to get into someone else's crop and then they have access to it. So. There's an IP issue there as well. IP being intellectual property. Yes. <laughs> so um, 
you kind of mentioned, I was going to ask you how far along you are to the goals. You kind of talked about how it probably will not be in your lifetime, but I was curious what, what are the barriers to progress? And is there also kind of a tipping point that you, you, the Land Institute has been able to identify? Yes. So um, we have made considerable progress in the last 20 years, approximately, of more intensive plant breeding on these perennial grains. Um, of our five breeding programs at the Land Institute, we do have Kernza perennial grain to show for our efforts. It yields, oh, 30 to 40 percent of annual wheat and is on about 4,000 acres in the U.S., um, producing food for people to eat or drink in beers, pastas, crackers, cookies, breads, and so on. Um, so that's exciting progress that um, I think is great. And we, we think that at the current rate, uh, Kernza could be yielding as much as annual wheat in the next 15 to 20 years, uh, which really isn't that far along. So mm. I'm excited to see that come to fruition. And um, another really exciting milestone uh, is from our partners at Yunnan University, uh, who, with our support and counsel about 10 years ago, started uh, in earnest a perennial rice breeding program. And they have released a number of varieties of that perennial rice that is yielding the same as annual rice today. So they made a breakthrough there that, again, serves as sort of a beacon of hope that we can make this happen with the major crops of the world and many other additional crops that maybe we don't know about yet. And and is that in China? Yes, I'm sorry. It is uh, Yunnan province in uh, China, and it's also planted all over China um, in Laos and Vietnam and uh, some other countries in that region and has been brought um, to some countries in Africa as well for testing. So going back to Kernza, I noticed, I can't remember if it's trademarked or registered or or whatnot, but that your mission is a nonprofit. So why why is it trademarked and or registered in some way? And how is that controlled or, or shared? Just because we were talking about Monsanto seed. Too. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the our so the trademark, the trade name Kernza is just a trade name. So it doesn't protect the seed necessarily. It basically um, came about because there were some food companies that wanted to, were excited about the promise of perennials and wanted to start using them. This was uh, five to 10 years ago. And they said, well, intermediate wheatgrass or thinopyrum intermedium isn't a very stage worthy name. So could you come up with a new name, Land Institute, so that we can put it on our package <laughs> that we're using this thing that is perennial? Um, and so we came up with this name Kernza and trademarked it and have been managing that trademark since about 2009. Um, and it's been a nice way as the first perennial grain crop here in the United States to be sort of out in the market. It's been nice to be able to control the quality of that through this trademark. So we can make sure that when a farmer sells a, um, a baker or a consumer goods uh, company, this grain that they are actually getting perennial Kernza. 
um, that they're not getting some other mixture of things. So there's this identity preserve program that goes along with that trade name. So it's a way for us to protect the, the quality. And also it's a way for us to ensure that folks aren't making ridiculous claims about Kernza on their packages. Um, we're a scientific organization, so it's important to us that we are rightfully calibrated with the science available to us about what these grains can and cannot do. And so we have partnered with Patagonia Provisions and General Mills, as well as uh, small shops in throughout the U.S. to make sure that their claims are appropriate and backed up with science. And those are examples of producers who actually in the process are already marketing food that is made with Kernza. Correct. Yes. And so can you find it in the, how easy is it to find it in the grocery store or it's still in the R&D phase? Well, you can find it um, at, in beer cans. Um, there's a beer called Long Root Ale that's produced by Patagonia Provisions. And I believe it's available still in Whole Foods and maybe other markets um, in California and some other states, and pretty sure you can go to the Patagonia Provisions website and find out where all you can find that beer. Um, there's actually two. There's an IPA and a WIT uh, version. And then um, General Mills has made a short-run cereal that may or may not still be in um, grocery stores around the U.S., um, mostly larger markets, and it was called Carbon Smart I'm messing it up. I'm not sure what it was called, but um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's around. You can just um, find that. And then there's an exciting kind of new company called Perennial Pantry that is selling flour, kerns of flour and kerns of whole grain to consumers all over the country. So you can get online and make an order there. They also recently released a pasta and some crackers out of Kernza. Um, so it's a great way to get... Uh, turns it into your kitchen if you want to try try a recipe with it. Okay, that's exciting. We're going to come back uh, to that point in a, in a little bit in the show. We're going to take a break now, and we'll be back with more about perennial crops and the Land Institute with its president, Rachel Stroke. Stay with us. This episode is supported by HRN business member, Food Karma Projects, dedicated to community building by creating unique food events that showcase the best local food, chefs, beer, and wine. After a successful trip to Boston, Bowl of Zole is coming home to Bushwick, Brooklyn. The festival aims to spotlight heritage pozole and celebrate the vibrant culture of agave spirits like mezcal, tequila, and sotol. And to pay it forward, each chef will be donating bowls of pozole to City Harvest, New York City's largest food rescue organization. Bowl of Zole takes place on Thursday, October 20th at 99 Scott Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. To purchase tickets and for more information, visit bowlofzole.com. That's B-O-W-L-O-F-Z-O-L-E.com. Food Karma Project supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Welcome back. We're talking to Rachel Stroer 
president of the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, about the future of perennial crops and sustainable agriculture. So one of the things we kind of almost got near but didn't really talk about in any depth that that I remember from talking with you is about the unique aspect of the Institute's work kind of bridging both sides of food politics or even kind of both sides of the conversation because you're dealing with scientists, you're dealing with farmers, you're dealing with food policy and climate change. And I was just curious from your experience how you felt like the Land Institute's initiatives are do actually help uh, bridge some perceived, at least political divides. Yeah, well, um, just organically over the last 45 years, um, it's amazing how the work has unified folks from, from sort of both sides of the aisle. Clearly, we have farmers who are engaged and interested. I've never sat in a presentation of the Land Institute's work where there was a farmer in the audience when the farmer didn't raise their hand and say, when can I get this thing? <laughs> when can I get some seed from my for my farm? Um, so there's definitely interest there. And um, there's definitely benefit to the farm, farm community in terms of reduction of labor and reduction of expensive inputs needed for these future perennial systems. Um, and on the other hand, this is a very robust climate solution in terms of our um, farm lands. I think it's using using nature as a measure for what we're trying to accomplish. We really think that a per diverse perennial agroecosystem can come as about as close as any other technology we know of today to sequestering really close to what was sequestered by the natural ecosystem that came before. So a robust climate solution and you there are so we're able to sort of talk to farmers and talk about climate change and it seems to be working okay which is a bridge in itself um i tend to think that and i don't know if you have this experience with your work at the foundation but um food just seems to be something that brings people together mm. and you can't deny, no one can deny that we're going to need food in the future. <laughs> and so it's sort of basic um, in a way that I, that appears to be unifying. And um, we are really trying to sustain that, which is challenging in today's highly polarized social and political environment. But we're doing our best to continue to create and expand this work into a movement, a sort of pluralistic movement of people working on all continents for this perennial future. Do you also think it helps that you're A, based in what is characterized as a red state and not just that, but in the, the center of large scale farming and so that you're kind of more of a local institute or organization talking about these things than some coastal urban entity. Yeah, I think I think that helps. And, and you're from the heartland and <laughs> I'm from the heartland. So I tend to think that there's something special about living in that world and and understanding the the plight of the farmers in in that region and understanding that this is something that can really help them protect their biggest asset, which is their land over hundreds and thousands of years. It strikes me too um, when you were talking about Kernza and and its development. Is it also that you guys, which is 
possibly the place-based orientation, are looking at a sustainable solution that will fit into existing large-scale agricultural practices rather than kind of preaching alike, no more big farms, it all needs to be small and organic and and hyper-local. Yeah, I think it helps that, you know, we, this is just, you know, for some and for many, it's getting at the root of the problem, which is the annual grain and substituting it with a new technology that ideally can be used largely in the same way that it is today, but with the reductions I cited before. Mm-hmm. And so there, there isn't, um, there's not really a bad guy <laughs> in our in our because you're not running in and saying all you guys doing these huge thousand acre farms need to stop and it needs to be smaller and get rid of your combine and that that's it's a solution that has all this climate and production and health benefit without being a radical stop and start over approach. Right, it can fit into many different models, whether it's a small scale multi you know, production farm or whether it's a large scale um, industrial operation. It fits in both. It's, it's a, it can be accomplished in both. Which is also interesting because I was reading, I was re- it was fiction based on fact about the Dust Bowl and how I think there's a lot of, there's not a lot of discussion in, in sort of public consciousness about the Dust Bowl, about why people left and what was going on. And this book brought into, I want to say it's Kristen Hanna's book, um, brought into the fact that the government came in and said, well, one of the reasons we're having these horrible dust storms is you're all farming wrong. And actually, some of the idea that the government had was correct in terms of the way people were farming was was destroying the land. The policies they put in got sort of warped. But it is possible to have a large-scale ecological shift when particularly a large-scale entity like the federal government is helping push farmers in whatever direction. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting uh, moment to cite because um, that is the moment that started also the soil conservation work in the U.S. And when Wes Jackson, our co-founder, looked at the report, the soil loss report in the ni- early ni- late 1970s, early 1980s, um, sort of acknowledged that we hadn't made much progress in solving that. And so he was caused to sort of think, well, what if all of these, what he called problems in agriculture, so soil erosion and and the like, were actually not the problem. The problem is the problem of agriculture, which is that it's based on these annual grains grown in monoculture systems. And so it's not so much that you've been farming it correctly, but you've been given unideal tools to create this food with. What if we produce different tools, a perennial grain um, and a diverse agroecosystem to give you a better chance of success from the beginning? Yeah, I was struck by how the advice from the government at the time of of the Dust Bowl, and you're you're talking that he was looking at an old report in a later era that they had actually the right ideas of cover crops and rotation and all these things. But then somehow, as often happens, as it got implemented and co-opted by other entities or businesses, it didn't really end up 
ecologically or like you're saying meeting nature where it should and then that's kind of a lot of where people are trying to get back to but it's also crazily not a new idea um and uh yep. I mean, certainly your breeding and all of that is more of a new idea but the the general practices of what is sustainable agriculture are not necessarily new ideas they're just things that people lost practice on and now we have the benefit of science and data and technology that we can layer into the old practices Yes. This is why we think, and we're biased, but it's important to have work that is on long-term solutions. So what, what happens often if we, if we focus only on things that we can accomplish tomorrow, you know, new practices that we could test tomorrow on many millions of acres, um, we're not thinking big enough. We're not looking far enough into the future to say, well, what if we step back and we took the time might take us a hundred years to develop perennial grain crops, but they could make all of that other gymnastics we do to make the annual system work moot. And it would make our life much easier just to have the perennial in the first place. Yeah. And you're breeding. Yeah. And you're also breeding. So you're not just going back to, okay, we just need the old ways. You're breeding to create something that, that didn't exactly exist before that, that marries all, all of what you've talked about. Yes. Yep. Okay. Let's switch gears because um, I have Julia on my shoulder right now whispering in my ear. Taste. Does perennial wheat flour taste any good? I know that's what Julia would want me to ask. Sure. Um, well, I'm going to offer you two answers. One is for kerns of perennial grain, um, folks who are using it say it does taste great. And that is from actual eaters telling us that. Uh, brewers also love to work with it because it has a sort of unique uh, nutty flavor to it. Um, so that's working well. It is uh, higher in gluten and, or sorry, lower in gluten and higher in fiber. So it, it bakes and, and work, you work with it a little bit more like a rye uh, than like a bread wheat. Uh, so it has some different characteristics there that are, you know, worth experimenting in the kitchen, with, which I know Julia would have enjoyed. Um, and perennial wheat, which is a hybrid of durum wheat and intermediate wheatgrass, is a little bit more like a durum wheat in the way that it tastes and works in the kitchen. So both are great options. Uh, perennial wheat is not quite fully developed yet. Um, but we're hopeful that it will be in the coming years and Kearns is out there and ready for people to taste for themselves. So just so I have it clear in my mind, when you're talking about Kearns is a perennial, but you differentiate from being wheat. Is that because it's actually this development of wheat grass, which is a grass that's different and, and it's kind of purely that it's just been bred, but it hasn't been crossed like the perennial wheat that you're talking about? Correct. Yep. So it is It is not technically wheat. Uh, Kernza is not wheat. It's a relative of wheat and it's coming from this intermediate wheatgrass um, plant. So it does substitute wheat in our diet. That's sort of where it lives in our recipes. Um, but we we can't call it wheat. So a little, little bit different. Is it benefit of that or are you just still in the R&D phase for people with gluten allergies or aversions or you even... Um, you know, with strong allergic reactions to gluten is Kearns, have you found 
the current day is good for them or it's too soon to sort of say? Um, it is not safe for folks with celiac or gluten intolerance. Um, it is going to be more like uh, wheat in, in that case. Um, we're not really breeding at this moment for taste really much and or those kind of nutrition characteristics uh, because we are focused most uh, right now on just getting these things to be high yielding, act like crops in the field and remain perennial for three or more years. Gotcha. So I wanted to ask you before we run out of time about your Prairie Festival, which I, I didn't know about until now. And I was reading that it, it it's come back after a couple years hiatus for the post-pandemic, but the lineup looked incredible. Can you can you share some highlights from the, the Prairie Festival? Because I think it just happened a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Well, um, it is an injustice that you didn't know about this <laughs> until now. Um, I will expect to see you next year. Um, I'll look for my invite in mine. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, consider this your invite. Okay. Um, so it is a, it's a great event. Um, we host, you know, hundreds of people on site at the Land Institute. The speakers uh, present in a big barn that was built by Wes and Dana Jackson and a group of Land Institute interns many, many decades ago um, and is a low-tech operation in that there are no PowerPoint presentations. So people are left with the uh, visuals they can create with their hands and their voices on stage. Um, we had a great lineup this year. I was really excited to have uh, our Land Institute collaborator, Omar Tesdale, um, who is working with Kernza and other perennial grains in Palestine, uh, came and talked about just the agricultural history of the Fertile Crescent and his hopes and dreams of uh, continuing to intensify work on these perennial grains in that region. Uh, we had a the Kansas Black Farmers Association had a group of their members telling stories of uh, what it's like being black farmers in the state and how they're still struggling today to gain access to land and financing to support a life in farming. Um, and one of my other favorites was that Huascar Medina, who's the poet laureate of Kansas, uh, came and read his poetry and uh, was, was very moving in that. Um, our musical guest was Paul Winter, which was also fabulous. We always have a musical guest. And we also always have a Friday night barn dance. And people who have never done a barn dance in their life um, take to the dirt floor of this barn and have a riot of a good time. So it was, it was a fabulous, fabulous year. And we'll look forward to doing it again late next September. Wow, it sounds both fun and interesting, which is the type of event we love at the the foundation. And and I, I was just thinking, I hope this is really giving people, as as fellow Kansans talking now, a a broader view of of the uh, diversity of things in Kansas and the fact that they have a poet laureate. Just I think says a lot. Yeah, agreed. Okay. After the break, we're going to hear Rachel's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact. JuliaChildFoundation.org, or better yet, you can tweet us at JuliaChildJCF. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. 
no, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Rachel, what's your Julia moment? Yes, thank you. Um, well, I am so excited to respond to this question. I think um, one of my favorite things about Julia is all of the testing um, and inevitable failure that comes along with it, mm. I think, um, and, and, and just this sort of tenacity to um, get it right. Um, there's sort of a scientific quality to Julia's work um, and bringing that to this scientific organization that I now lead is nice to see the crisscross between experimentation in the kitchen and experimentation in the genetics and how success and failure relates to that. Um, but what I think I most like, um, my, my favorite um, Julia quote is about moderation, mm -hmm. small helpings, sampling a little bit of everything. Um, there's a, I think that there's a necessity in this perennial future within ecological limits to really um, think about moderation and how much is enough and enjoying the small helpings um, of life. So I appreciate that one as well. Oh, I love those. And I think, yeah, I think she would have been fascinated. I think you're also kind of saying to some of the philosophy from the Land Institute is you're not saying, okay, everyone throw out your commercial or even highly you know, organic refined flour. You're saying start incorporating this little by little. Like you could look at the moderation point that way, which is you can have yeah. kerns of flour alongside your regular and use them for different purposes or start combining them like an incremental approach. Yes, and this kind of slow evolution of our recipes from being based on this 10,000-year history of annual grain crops and now evolving in test kitchens and home kitchens all over the world to incorporate these perennial grains as they become available. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us and introducing us to the Land Institute and, and the important work that you guys are doing. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, and thanks, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the Land Institute and about perennial crops, go to landinstitute.org. It's at the Land Institute on Facebook and Instagram and at Nature as Measure on Twitter. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. Make sure you're also following at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest on upcoming events in Santa Barbara. And I have the inside track that we're going to have something in early November. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song, New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. 
Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.